All right, a formal welcome to, welcome to Think Different. Tanya, we have had how many sessions? At least 20 sessions. We're in the 20s, low 20s, I believe, um, for these conversations on Tanya. And we are up to, tonight we're starting chapter 52, which as at this point, you may very well know that there are 53 chapters in Tanya. So we are up to the second to last chapter, the penultimate chapter of Tanya. And boy, is this chapter a doozy. There's so much to talk about. I want to give a quick introduction that also kind of contextualizes the conversation because it's been a few weeks with Passover and then we had a, an art event with an artist named Tanya but not studying Tanya. It was a whole thing a few weeks ago. So we're going to now reset and jump back in. You may recall this from a few weeks ago. We were speaking about what is the purpose of the Mishkan? What is the purpose of the tabernacle the, the, or the temple? It's a home for God on earth. What does that even mean, we asked. The Altar of asked Tanya, what does that even mean? A home for God on earth. Doesn't God fill all of existence, right? Is there any place on earth that is devoid of divine presence? What does it mean that, that the temple is a home for God? What kind of home? You see, when we're talking about a human being, it makes sense to say that you and I have a home, which means that that's where we reside and we don't reside in other places. Sure, we may travel and wander those other roads, but our abode is in one place. But can we really say that God's abode is in any one place? Isn't that limiting God? Isn't God everywhere? And so in chapter, this was chapter 51, chapter 51, he gave a very detailed and elaborate explanation of what it means when we say that the temple was a home for God, even though God is everywhere. In other words, both statements are true. God is everywhere. God's presence is all pervasive. God is omnipresent. At the very same time, it can be said that a singular place is God's home. How does that work? He distinguishes between etzem and giloi. We've talked about these concepts so many times, whether it's in Tanya or Kabbalah and Kafi and other contexts, etzem and giloi translate to essence and revelation. There's the essence of a thing, and then there is its revelation or manifestation. There's what it is, and then there's what it looks like. And those are not always the same thing. Oftentimes, those are very different, right? So when you think about a human being, there one dimension, it's not even a dimension, it's the, in one conversation, you can talk about who the person is in essence, and another conversation could be about how they appear or how others behold or, or understand the person. So typically, if you want to think of like dimensions, um, etzem is the core, right? The essence is at the core, the inside. And giloi, revelation, is about the surface, about the outside. So vis-a-vis -vis God and the world, this is what he said in chapter 51. He said that God's essence is everywhere, 
right? God's core essence reality is absolutely everywhere equally. There's no difference between a higher world or a lower world or in this world between Israel and the former Soviet Union and Argentina and Atlanta. There's no difference. God's essence is everywhere equally. But the revelation of God, or more precisely, our perception of God differs from place to place. In the Holy Temple, human beings would become more aware of God. Whereas on the construction site, perhaps a person is more attuned to the steel beams. I, I've have never really been on a construction site, so forgive me. So steel beams and whatever else is on a construction site, as opposed to thinking about the divine presence. Now, yeah, I'm not saying you can't find God building a skyscraper. You certainly can. But it, there's a different experience, a different appearance or apparent. Um, uh, uh, there's a difference in, in what's immediately, obviously, um, perceptible between whether you're in the temple versus whether you are just in a, a regular mundane place. So, is God everywhere? Yes. Is God more revealed in the temple? Yes. And that's a product of both sides. Number one, God take removing some of the curtains, so to speak, and also a person heightening their own awareness, knowing they're in a space that is holy. So on both sides, some barriers are coming down. It's like, to explain that last point that I just said, you know, when you're having a deep conversation with somebody, so you can have like a, a surface conversation. Hi, what's your name? What do you do? Where do you live? Okay, blah, blah, blah. All right, surface conversation. Then you can have a deep conversation when you really get to know the other person. And what happens in a, in a deep conversation is each party has to discard one layer of blockage, one layer of facade that covers who they really are, right? To be more vulnerable. Like, yes, I usually pretend to be this, that, or the other, but if we're having a real conversation, I don't mind sharing with you that this facade, eh, maybe not so true. And then that encourages the other person to shed a facade of theirs. And then I'll shed one, another layer and that person will shed another layer on their side. And slowly, slowly, we move into a very close space, an essential connection. So the same thing is true, again, we're giving human examples for God, but conceptually, the same is true when it comes to God and the temple. The temple is a space on earth where God sheds his own facades, and the human being also sheds their facades, where you and I can be more real and encounter God's essential reality. That's what the temple is. So is God more there than anywhere else? No, God is everywhere. But is God more accessible there in an easier way, in a more obvious way? Yes. Can God be accessible everywhere? 100%.
But is God more accessible practically? There, yes. The example that he gave from the human condition is the example of the soul animating and enlivening the body. Because it really follows the same dual process. The essence of the soul is everywhere. What? You're going to tell me that that your toe is less you than your nose? <laughs> what does that mean? It's your nose and your toe. No, no, no. Okay. But what about your kneecap and your ear? Yeah, that's still you, right? The same soul, your same essence is all is everywhere. It's, if it's you, it's, it's all you. So the essence of your soul, i.e. your core identity, is everywhere equally. However, however, where do you see the most obvious signs of life or the most heightened, the deepest, the most obvious signs of life in the consciousness, in the brain? That's where you see, and I don't mean only seeing visually, but that's where it's obvious that life is happening. It's the, seat, it's the brain, which is the seat of consciousness, self-awareness. How do we even know that we're alive? It's through our brains that tell us, yes, we're alive. So it's the mind, it's the brain that is the most obvious or most obviously being enlivened by the soul. Now, again, the soul is everywhere. Is the soul in the toe? Yes. The toenail? Yeah. Right? But where is it seen? Where is it obvious? Where is it visible? More in the brain, more in the mind. This takes us, that was last week's chapter. Sorry, that was the last chapter that we studied together from a few weeks back. This week, we continue the conversation. And we talk about how this same duality of essence and revelation, which just to explain one more time, essence is everywhere. Revelation is where you can see it. So this same duality exists in the scaffolding of the worlds. In other words, this chain of reality where Kabbalah says that it's not just the here and now that exists, but there are all these deeper dimensions of reality that are considered higher than our own, not physically higher, although I went like that before, not spatially higher, but deeper, more spiritual forms of life. These are also powered by the same duality. Let me explain. Again, God's essence is everywhere. And what that means is that God's essence is both in the highest realms and in the lowest realms. Remember I said before about the toenail? Yeah. If we are the toe, I don't mean to be disparaging to us. Why would I ever do that? But if one were to say that relative to the worlds of the angels, we are the toenail of existence, I, I could see that. I'm just saying. But nonetheless, God's essence is here as much as it is anywhere else. We're not missing out on God's essence. So is God with the angels? Yes. Is God here? Yes. Same God? Yes. Same essence? Absolutely yes. The same God, same essence, 
all pervasive everywhere. Whether it's in the hidden worlds, the secret worlds, the revealed worlds, the world of Atsilot emanation, Bria creation, Yitzira formation, Asiya action, Asiya Hagashmi, the physical Asiya that we're in, the same essence is everywhere. Like we said before, vis-a-vis the soul, the essence of the soul is the same in the nose and the toe and the ear and the kneecap. It's the same toenail, brain, it's the same essence. We also said regarding the world, God within this world, God is everywhere equally on a level of essence. So again, we have three examples now. The soul and the body, God in this world, and God throughout all of the worlds. Are you with me on what we're doing here? Yes? Yeah? So on an essential level, on an essence level, right? the essence is the same everywhere. That's the definition of essence. The essence doesn't change. Essence is everywhere, and it's all pervasive. However, of course, the question is not, where's God's essence solely? The question is also, where do you see God most, most pronounced? On this world, it's in the temple. But in the, in the general schematic of all the worlds, where do you see God? Not physically up, but in the higher realms. That's why they're called higher realms. In Tanya, he asked the question, previous chapter, he asked the question, not the previous, in a previous chapter. He said, why, why, do, why does Kabbalah talk about higher worlds and lower worlds? Does it mean that there's some sort of escalator up to heaven? It's like, we're down here and the higher worlds are up there and you need a rocket ship to climb and souls ascend. And de- Is that what it means? I already gave you the answer before. It's not spatial. It's not physical. The limitations of, of space don't exist above. They exist for us. They don't exist. Again, I'm using the word above. They don't exist outside. Whoops, another physical term. There's no way to speak about these things without using physical terminology. So excuse me, but it is what it is. There's, but there's physical limitations, spatial limitations don't exist beyond our realm of existence. Which means to say very simply, the world of Atzilut, which is the highest of the four worlds, is not higher than our world physically. It's a different state of existence. It's a heightened state of existence. Why is it called higher? Vis-a-vis God's essence, it's not higher, it's the same. But vis-a-vis God's revelation, it's higher. Why higher? It knows God more than us. It recognizes God more than us. Or stated maybe a little bit better, God is more recognized and more recognizable in the world of Atsilut, the world of emanation, than God is here in the world of action. I picture God in this world kind of like dressed up like a spy. Yeah, like a trench coat, that spy hat. The glasses, I mean, I guess that's an obvious spy look, so maybe that's not a really great way to hide, but um, who am I thinking of, Inspector Gadget or something? Remember that, Inspector Gadget? You guys remember that? Yes? No? All right. Either way. Um, yeah, so the higher worlds are called higher because they have a, a more pronounced apprehension.
They can, comp- they, they can understand and appreciate and recognize God more than we can. Now, doesn't mean that a human being can't come to understand God, etc. Of course, but not in the same immediate fashion that the angels and the souls in those other realms can. Thus, we have the same duality. No matter what world you're on, God's essence is there equally. However, depending on which world you're, you, you exist, God will either be more revealed or less revealed. So on a level of essence, it's the same throughout. Revelation, your mileage may vary. Three examples of this. Between the various worlds, within our own world, in the temple, right? In the temple, God is more revealed elsewhere. He is, he exists, but not as revealed. The same thing is true with the soul and the body. The soul is everywhere, but it's most revealed in the seat of consciousness. So this third idea, I'm going to call it the vertical understanding, even though it's not literally vertical. The higher and lower realms of existence. That is the subject of chapter, 40, uh, chapter 52 of Tanya. Chapter 52 of Tanya talks about what it is exactly that distinguishes a higher world from a lower world. And what is it that's at the core of the transmission of divine awareness. And what we'll see today is at the core of everything is God's will and wisdom as explored and described in Torah. Torah becomes the key, the key of the transmission to the transmission of divine awareness throughout all the planes of existence. Let me say this in very, hopefully, very clear terminology. If you and I, in this world, want to know God, how do we go about that? You can go to a mountaintop and clear your mind and meditate on God. But who says that that's God? Maybe that's a nice creative imagination that you might have. How do you know that you found God? How do you find God? Judaism has one simple answer. You study Torah and you do a mitzvah. When you study Torah, you're encountering, because we believe that Torah comes from God, you are encountering God's wisdom and God's will, God's desire for humankind. So you encounter God's mind, God's ideas, and you also encounter what God wants from us. So when you study Torah, when you and I study Torah, you're essentially meeting God on His terms. When you're meditating, you're creating God on your terms. Unless you're meditating on Torah, and then, of course, you're meeting God in His terms. But again, if you and I are coming up with an, uh, you know, we clear our minds and we think about God and we think of and we picture God in our minds, it might feel lovely, but what are we actually picturing? What are we actually connecting with? Our own imagination. So is it very profound to connect with yourself? Maybe. I don't think, maybe there's some benefit. But is there spiritual benefit? I don't know. I'm not sure about that. But when it comes to studying Torah, you're meeting God on His terms. You're studying about Him the way He Himself recorded Himself. Now we're talking.
as we'll see today, the way we study Torah and the way Torah is studied on higher levels of existence is very different. The higher you go, not spatially, but the deeper you go in the other realms of existence, the deeper awareness those worlds and the beings in those worlds, like souls and angels, have of divine will and wisdom. And thus, the more connected they are in, a, in an obvious way, in a revealed way, with the source. So the essence is everywhere. But where do you see it? Where do you see God? You see God in the way the creatures of that realm perceive God. And how, how is that perception? What's the tool? What's the pathway of, of perception, divine perception? It's Torah. Let me pause here for a moment to check in just to make sure I didn't lose everybody. Does what, I'm, did what I say make sense? Sort of? Yes? Okay, wow. I got, I got more head nodding than I thought. Okay? Yes, Donna, go ahead. Maybe we can get the connection easier, like in the temple. Right. So would that apply also to symbols? Like if we, you know, wearing a symbol? Kind of thing? It could be, yeah, it could be. So like there's no, there's no exclusive necessarily on where we can find. because Since the essence is everywhere, right? So there's always access. And, and you can create, you and I, we can create different tools that help with access, especially when those tools are coming from Torah sources. So you have a Jewish symbol or a Torah symbol, right? A mitzvah symbol, boom, right? That's a, that's a, that's a fierce reminder of what we're plugging into, and that's a great pathway. So Judaism is very much about the symbols. For example, it says about the tzitzis, the fringes that we wear at the corner of, of the garment, it says that, you'll, that you should wear them. And, and then when you, when you look at the, at the strings, when you look at the, at the fringes, you'll remember all the commandments. So there you have an example of, of, of wearing something, and the whole purpose is it's meant to be like a looking glass almost to something beyond that thing itself. Right? When you look at it, you're meant to be seeing really something else, what it represents. So you're going to look at the strings, but you're going to see the mitzvot. You're going to see the points of connection that you have with God Almighty. God said, here, here, here are access points. When you look at the strings, you remember the access points. By the way, you might wonder, uh, not you specifically, but somebody might wonder, um, what's the connection between the strings and the mitzvot? The numerology of tzitzis. Is 600. Tzitzit, the Hebrew word, the numerology, gematria is 600. Plus, for each corner, there are eight strings and five knots. 600, numerology, plus eight strings, plus five knots is, you guessed it, 613, the exact number of commandments. So that's the way the commentators explain the connection between one of the ways of explaining the connection. But yeah, when we talk about symbology, especially when it comes to mitzvah symbology, um, there's a lot to be said about uh, revelation in the, con in the context of opening our eyes to, that, to a truth that otherwise might be concealed.
But that's really the point, that the essence, God is everywhere. The only question is, do you and I see him? Right? And, and, and where is it easier to find God? So on a very simple level, one might say that a holiday is a point in time where access is easier. Like on Passover, so you feel more spiritual because you prepare for it and you're gathering around, you're telling the story. So it's a whole experience, so it, it just it lends itself to a connection. So like the temple is in space, Passover is perhaps in time, maybe not to the same extent, but you might feel God, Yom Kippur. So we have different moments in time, different symbols perhaps, as you mentioned, different sp- Places, the Western Wall today, right? Where you can feel God more. You can see God more. Does that mean that God is there more than anywhere else? No, God's everywhere equally. But there's more access there. And that's primarily perception. And the same thing is true with regards to the world's. Not just within our world, but when you look at a broader view. So there's the way we look at planet Earth and say God is everywhere, but you can find them easier in in Jerusalem in in the temple. But then you zoom out of planet Earth and you have all these, I don't mean just the planets, you have all these realms, spiritual realms of existence. And the same thing is true there. God is everywhere equally. God is as present in this world flawed and sometimes it feels like broken and sometimes it feels like dark and it feels like evil. In this world, God is as much as he is in any of the loftier worlds. God's essence is (coughs) equally present. But where do you see God more? Where are you more aware of God In this world, or if you were an angel or a disembodied soul in the world of emanation? Okay, it would be the latter is the answer, right? L-A-T-T-E-R. It would be the the upper worlds. And again, what constitutes the awareness? Or is it just some sort of nebulous, I'm aware of God or I'm not aware of God? It's specifically vis-a-vis our understanding of in connection with Torah and mitzvot. So there's the Torah mitzvot that we learn. And then there's Torah mitzvot, the way it is understood. And on some level, I guess, practiced in the loftier realms. Give an example. Oh, before the example. And the premise of chapter 52 is that the higher you go, conceptually in the world, the higher you go, the more awareness of God there is. That's why it's called higher. It's not physically higher. It's more awareness, higher awareness. And why is there more? And and wherein does this greater awareness manifest? In the understanding of God's will and wisdom, Torah and mitzvot. But what does it mean that the angels study Torah? What are they studying? Physical tefillin? Matzah? What are they studying? So I want to give you an example. This is what I started saying before. It's not going to be a perfect example, but it's going to hopefully open up our minds to this concept of learning something on multiple levels. Simple example, you want to teach mathematics to a young child, maybe to a five-year-old child. And so you take 
I mean, you guys know me by now, right? You know that there's one thing you're going to find in my house. Seltzer cans. Before they're recycled. This one was a little bit crushed. Yeah? Look at this. Well, this one's empty. This is the one that I'm working on emptying right now. So, look. We have two seltzer cans right here. Yeah? Good. So, um... Wait a second. Okay. So you want to teach your child, your five-year-old, addition, mathematics, right? So you tell them, this is one, one seltzer can. You take another one, how many do you have? One, two, right? Little Johnny says, I don't know why Johnny, right? One and two. Ah, so one plus one equals two, mazel tov. At another point in time, what you're trying to do is get the child to understand that one plus one equals two. Not just one seltzer can and another seltzer can equals two seltzer cans, but that one plus one equals two. But go to a five-year-old and say one plus one equals two, and they'll say a bear and a giraffe equals a zebra. I mean, they're, they're not going to, one plus one equals two doesn't, make, doesn't mean anything. What's one, what's one, and what's two? You're just saying words. It doesn't mean anything. You want to show something tangible. You want to show apples or seltzer cans, and we talk about counting physical things, that's one thing. But disembodied, just the concept, abstract concept, is too abstract for the child. In a very similar way, the Torah that we study is very concrete. The Torah that we study talks about matzah, and it talks about oxen, goring other oxen, and it talks about parents and children and relationships and uh, citrons and willows and all. We have a very physical Torah. The Torah talks about very physical things. So what are they studying in heaven? Are they studying these things? They're studying one plus one equals two. We're studying one lulav plus one esrog equals etc. a mitzvah. So we study the physical part of it or the the manifest the physical manifestation of the thing and the angels and the souls in heaven they study the spiritual concept of it so what does that sound like a little bit like kabbalah right where you take a mitzvah and you explain its theme right we've done that before you take a you take a mitzvah and you strip it of its physical context and you speak about the theme of the mitzvah, what it represents. So that's on some level what, what they're studying. But they're studying Torah in a, in, a, in a different way. But when they study, they're connecting. And they're connecting in a deep way. They have a higher level understanding because it's a little bit more abstract and less concrete. They have a higher level of understanding. And thus, that constitutes their greater awareness and perception of God. And thus, they are called higher. But here's the kicker. God is found here just as much as he's found in the higher worlds. The angels don't have any more access to God's essence than we have. We have full access. Even if they have greater awareness, we have equal access. And the final punchline, and this is really the ultimate lesson of Tanya, when you and I do a mitzvah and actually do what God wants, 
even if we're not aware of it, even if our perception is lacking, we are holding on to God's essence. We are hugging, embracing, kissing, whatever language you want to use. We are connecting deeply essence to essence when we do a mitzvah. But here's the kicker. We might not even sense it. A person could wrap tefillin and say Shema and take it off and turn around and say, I felt nothing. And they might be 100% being truthful. And that still does not contradict the fact that at that moment, there was an essence to essence connection. But I know what you're thinking. If by doing a mitzvah, you are literally embracing God's essence, then why didn't you feel it? And you know what the answer is? Because that's the hallmark of our reality. A reality in which God's presence is here, but the awareness is not. Are you with me on that? So you and I, so in the, in the higher worlds, they have awareness. They have full awareness. And God is there. What they're lacking is an opportunity to, do a, to actually do a mitzvah in a practical way. They have other ways to connect. But they can't do the stuff that they can't do the stuff that we do because they don't have the physical tools and the physical items to do it with. But we can. But just because we can't, just because we don't always feel and recognize and see the result, the connection born of the mitzvah, doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that our perception is limited based on where we exist in the scheme of worlds. If we know this going into it, then we manage our expectations. And we remind ourselves, I may not feel like the fireworks go off every time I eat a piece of matzah on Passover, but I know that by eating this piece of crunchy flatbread, yeah, this overpriced crunchy flatbread, I know that at, that, at this moment, I am embracing the divine essence, beyond revelation. Revelation ahin, revelation aher. That's Yiddish for, you know, this way or that way. doesn't make a difference whether I, I can feel it or I can see it. doesn't make a difference. I know it. I know that this is where God is. This is really where we're moving in this movement of Tanya. It's so profound. The whole premise of Tanya is, just do it. Don't worry about how you feel. Just do it. Right? You're not so excited. Do it. You are excited. Do it. Whatever it is, do it. Now, we should try to get as excited as we can. The last several chapters are all about meditation, developing a love for God, an awe of God, a respect for God. Wonderful. But at the end of the day, even if our revelation, our understanding, our perception of God is not 100%. The fact of the matter is, the, on the factual side, we can connect in a perfect fashion. All right, with this introduction, does that, and that, does that make sense? That should make sense, right? Okay. All right, with that introduction, and I believe I prefaced it by saying it was a short introduction. Oh, well. Um, now I think we can jump into chapter 50. Uh, chapter 52. Um, I keep on looking off to the side because this is where, I'm, uh, where my book is. Unfortunately, you know, when, when a book just is left to its own devices, it changes pages on its own. 
So right now my book is on chapter 43. So I keep on saying 52 while looking at 43 and it's like throwing me off. You know when you look at a color and it's got, and the color is written out, but it's a different color and a different word? Like orange is written red? Whatever. So anyway, chapter 52, either way you slice it. I'm going to share my screen with you. And let's jump in. All right, here we go. Chapter 52 of Tanya. Lots of introduction over here. Here we go. We're going we're gonna to probably stick with this translation and do less of their commentary. I, you know, I read it through a few times, their commentary. All right, I'm going to explain it the way I understand it, which may be a little bit different. Here we go. And just as in the human soul, the principal manifestation, manifestation of the undiffused vitality of the soul is in the brain, while all the organs receive merely a light and potency, which radiates to them from the source of the manifestation of the said vitality in the brain. Let me explain. In the human body, we gave the analogy of the soul and the body, where the soul is everywhere. The same you is in, I said this before, in your toe as in your, what did I say? Toe and ear and eye and elbow or something like that, whatever. The same soul, your soul is everywhere equally, yes, but the, I'm going to highlight the word, the manifestation, this is the key word, the revelation, the apparent see, like where do you see the soul, where do you see life? It's in the brain. And it's from the brain that said revealed life flows everywhere else. Uh, it doesn't have to be so mystical. On a very basic level, right? Biologically, we, we would say that the, the brain controls the central nervous system and controls the function of the heart that then pumps out blood to the rest of the body. So yeah, from the brain, that controls the rest of the body on a revealed level. But on a truthful level, the soul is equally everywhere. Okay? But, again, the manifestation is a lot in the brain, and then it gets a little bit. So to the point that your toe has the, the heel has the least obvious soul, which is why you can put into the hot water first. You don't put your head in. When you're testing out the heat of the bath, you don't like, oh, let me see if it's ready. Dunk your head. You put your heel. Right? So the way, just like it works with these gradations on a manifestation level within the human being, soul and body, so indeed, figurative, figuratively speaking, back inside, is the essential manifestation of the general stream of vitality. Again, manifestation of the general stream of vitality. That means the manifestation of divine energy, right? That animating the worlds and the creatures therein clothed and contained in his blessed will, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, which are called the intelligence, divine intelligence. So just like it is, we're going to do this again, just like it is with the soul, I don't know I'm putting my head, with the soul and the body. The soul essentially is everywhere, equally in the body. But on a manifest level, where do you see it? You see it more in the brain, and from there it goes to the other parts of the body, but you see it there less. You see the life force less in the other limbs, and you see it more in the brain. The same thing is true within the entire scope of existence. 
you find divine energy manifest more in God's chachma, sorry, in his will, his ratzon, his chachma, bina, and dat, will, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, which generally speaking are called mochin, intelligence, divine intelligence. And these, take a look, see at this, will, chachma, bina, and dat, some, will is ratzon, but it could also be the keter, you know, like the keter when you have the configuration, the crown, the keter, chachma, bina, dat, these elements are clothed, look at this, in the Torah and the mitzvot. The stream of divine light and manifestation that are accessible to us to perceive. That is enclosed in Torah and mitzvot, which is what I hopefully said before. Based on a creature, a person or an angel's understanding or connection with Torah and mitzvot is their level of awareness of the, of the divine. Because the divine energy is clothed in Torah and its mitzvot. So, I know I'm saying this ad nauseum again and again and again, but I, I don't know any other way to emphasize it. God is God's essence is everywhere, end of story. Nothing else to talk about. But where do you see God? In those that have an understanding and a connection with Torah and mitzvot, each world on its level. Take a look. The, man, the manifestation of this general flow of life, skip the unbolded words, is the source of vitality which the worlds receive. In other words, this manifestation of life, of divine life, is the source of life which the worlds receive. In other words, they are enlivened by what they can comprehend or see. Each world in particular receiving but a diffuse glow that shines forth from this source. So you have the, the big light that shines in kind of like the source of it all, like the, within the body would be the brain, which then filters down even to the toenail. So you have the big, original manifestation of divine light and life force in the Ratzon Chachma Binadad of Torah in the source. And then it's diffused and lessened into each world as the worlds unfold. In a similar manner, this is, he cites an example, a physical example, to the light that radiates from the sun. So think about, it's a really beautiful example. Right? And he says, it's like the light that radiates from the sun. So think about how hot it is on the sun. And the closer you are to the sun, the hotter it is. But the further you go away from the sun, right? The less heat and the less blinding it is. Now, does that mean that it's less sun no, but it's less revelation of sun, right? There's one sun, and if it's... If you're standing outside on a, very, on a hot summer day, and the sun is shining, and you take a mirror, a little pocket mirror, and you reflect it 
into the grass, you can burn the grass. Yeah? Why? Because in the mirror, you see the sun. <laughs> right? The mirror itself captures almost the sun. Not, not the full intensity, but it captures the source. So, there's essence and revelation. So the essence is equal. But the revelation, the light, not the sun, the light lessens as it spreads out. So the light closer to the source is, is more, more light, more heat. But as it moves away, it lessens and lessens. That's one example. Or another example, we said before, the faculties of the organs of the body, derive, or as the faculties of the organs of the body derive from the brain, as discussed above. Same thing with the brain. You have the soul is everywhere, equally in the body, but the brain is where it's revealed. And then from the brain, it diffuses into the rest of the body and it lessens as it moves out and as it moves on. Let's talk about the source, not the essence, but the original source where divine light and life forces manifest. This source is called I'm not keen on this translation. I'm going to retranslate it. This source is called, in Kabbalah, Alma de Iskalia, the world of manifestation. This is the first point of manifestation. Yes, the essence is everywhere, but like the brain, like the temple, right? There is a, there is a first point of manifestation. That's this. That's, what, that's what's called Alma de Iskalia. It's also called Machunita, which means queen. It's Aramaic for queen. It's also known as Ematata, another mother. Right? This is all euphemisms for Malchut, the energy of Malchut, the tenth and lowest of the Svirot. And it is also called the Shekhinah, divine presence. From the scriptural phrase, and I will dwell among them, this is the, the verse that is that capture that, that contains the commandment to build the Mishkan. God says. Oh, Mishkan is also literally these letters. Mishkan, Shin Chavnun, Mishkan, Shechina, same, same word. Dwelling. It's a home, a dwelling place. So, Vishachanti Bistochem, God says, build me a home and I'll dwell among them. That's what the Mishkan was all about. That was a home for the Shechina, for the, for the divine presence. Again, again, to reiterate, the essence is everywhere, but revelation, there's a central seat, and from there it spreads out. Where's the seat of revelation in the world? The temple. In um, the body, it's the brain. And in the worlds, on a, on a cosmic level, in other words, not just within this world, the holy temple, but within all of the worlds, it would be the highest point of this dimension called Malchut. That is where you have this full manifestation of divine energy. That's the tenth and final sphere where all the points of light are shining, and that's where God's initial revelation takes place. This is the world of manifestation. For it is, for this source is the beginning of the revelation of the light of the Ein Sof. This is where the infinite light first begins to shine. It is called Queen because it is this level which extends to and illumines the worlds in a revealed manner. Um, similar to a queen, for through her the wishes of the king are revealed. I don't know exactly what that means, for through her the wish of the king are revealed. Either way, the bottom, my, I would say I would actually 
believe that queen, the feminine quality, is more of a revelation quality than the masculine quality. Think about procreation, right? So who develops and ultimately births the child? It's the mother, right? So you have that feminine quality, the queen versus the king, that's all about manifestation and bringing things out in the open. In other words, the fetus is kind of like, uh, you know, the potential or the, the essence of it. The revelation, that's where, that's, where birth, that, that's where birth is, and that's associated with, of course, the feminine quality. That's, that's how I would understand the, the feminine idea of queen. The point is that there is an original point of cosmic point of divine, infinite, divine revelation. And then from that point, right from this source, let's continue, there extends to each individual world, sorry, to each individual thing, whether it's a world or a creation or a creature, right? The particular light and, and vitality is suitable for it. So from this central place of divine revelation flows the light and the life force that will then enliven this world and that world and this soul and that soul and this angel and that angel, each one according to its quality. No different than within the human body, where the essence of the soul is everywhere, but where is the soul revealed in the brain, and from that space in the brain, it then filters out and helps give life to each organ the qualities that it needs. So the ear hears, the eye sees, the fingers touch, the feet move, walk, etc. Every part has its purpose, its function, its role in particular, and, and, and its own way of understanding where it comes from and also what its purpose is. And it, the light, dwells and is clothed in them, thereby animating them. So really, we have three dimensions. There's essence, which is everywhere. Then you have first point of revelation, which is the seat. Like that's where you can really see the thing for what it is. And then there's everywhere else that that extends. And necessarily, it will be diminished and lessened from that original point of big manifestation. That's why the temple was a place where God was revealed. And then it extends, hopefully, a little bit everywhere else. But it's not the same. You can't see God exactly the same. Right? Inspiration from a holiday. He's not talking about it. I'm talking about it. Right? On the holiday is where the big, big um, uh, inspiration is. As you extend into time, you can draw from it and reminisce. But it's, uh, you're still working on... You, it's, not the, it's not the core. It's not, I don't want to use the word core because that's essence. It's not the original manifestation, but you're drawing from it. Same thing with the worlds. There's this original point of divine manifestation where things are revealed and then it's extended throughout the world. Let's do a little bit more inside before we close that out for today. Um, Okay, therefore, 
it is figuratively called, figuratively called mother of the children. I have Jewish souls, and it is also called the community of Israel. For from this source, the souls of Atzilat have emanated, and the souls of Bria have been created, and so forth. In other words, we're talking about a lofty dimension that serves as the source, if you will, of everything else that will unfold. Of course, divine essence is everywhere, but these, this is the source of revelation from which everything else, all of the revelation unfolds. It's called Eim Habanim, Knesset Yisrael, right? Mother of the children, the congregation of Israel, community of Israel. Either, whatever, these are all euphemisms for the source. And all of them, all of the world's creatures, souls, being derived only from the extension of the vitality and light, which extends and streams forth from the source, which is called Shechina. In other words, it's not directly getting from the essence. It's getting from this other type of flow, the more apparent and obvious flow, not the essential flow, not the essential essence. In a manner resembling the radiance of light from the sun, right? as it extends, it diminishes. But as for the Shechina itself, namely the origin and core of the manifestation whereby the Blessed Ain't illumines the worlds in a revealed form and which is the source of all streams of vitality in the worlds, right? Their entire vitality being no more than the light which diffused from it like the light radiated from the sun. So concerning the Shekhinah itself, here's what we have. The worlds cannot endure or receive the light of the Shekhinah that it might actually dwell and enclose itself in them without a garment to screen and conceal its light from them. The original point of revelation called Shechina and that level of Malchut, the mother of the children, as we said, Knesset Yisrael, whatever you want to call it, that original revelation point is too big and too bold to flow directly into everything else that unfolds from that point. They need a cut level of light, not the full picture. Right? It would blow it up. If it were not concealed in a garment, essentially, if there was no tzimtzum, if there was no concealment, it would be problematic. It needs the garments so that they may not become entirely nullified and lose their identity within the source. Just as the light of the sun is nullified in its source, namely in the sun itself, where this light cannot be seen, but only the integral mass of the sun itself. When you're on earth, you can see the ray of light. When you're by the sun, all you see is the sun. You don't see the ray. So paradoxically, the closer you get to the source, the closer you are to the source, but the less of the other you see. Whereas the further you get away from source, the less source you see, but the more other you see. So if you were to somehow superimpose the source, Shina, onto this world, onto us, we would blow up spiritually. It would be too much. So we exist precisely because we are extensions of extensions of extensions of extensions from that original space. That's how we exist with our square space, right? We exist, right? We don't know God. We don't know this. We don't know spirituality. We just know ourselves and we, 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 we recognize ourselves. We're self-aware. Right? That whole thing, that whole box that, we are, that we're in, is precisely because 
we're so far removed from the, from the source. Not from the essence. The essence is right here. But far removed from that original manifestation of divine light, infinite light. Because we're so far removed, that's why we have all the features of physical beings and human beings and, and limitations. If we were to suddenly, if the Shekhinah were suddenly to, to move in next to us, it would undo us. We would be like the angels above, disembodied emanations that are not self-aware, only source-aware. So, would that be good? I don't know. But it would be very different. You can't have both. You can't be here and be there at the same time. Right? You can't be a brain and a toenail at the same time. It just doesn't work. A toenail can grow with the ability to cut it off without feeling pain. Right? Because it's so far removed from the brain. Right? Go, God forbid, cut off a piece of the brain. Painless? Can't even imagine. Right? Uh, how it's just it's not not even in the realm of, of of conversation, but you could do that with a toenail, because it's not only physically, spatially, but conceptually removed from that from the brain. So you have this on a cosmic level, right? So we have three dimensions that we've spoken about: the the human human being, soul and body, the world and the temple, and then the cosmic universe. Not just this world, but Everything, the whole spectrum of existence, of creation. And so that's the new thing that we study today, the spectrum of existence, of creation. There is divine essences everywhere. Done, that's our caveat, that's our disclaimer. But when it comes to revelation, there is a, an original point of revelation. And it's from there that everything else flows. Cut lower and lower and lower, diminished, diminished, diminished. Until we get all the way down to the bottom, and that's us. And in the bottom, we're created last. We're the most self-aware of all the creations. I said this in another class recently. You know, the, uh, the lions are not writing books about consciousness and self. And yeah, that shows uh, an enlightenment that we have, perhaps. But it also shows how much aware of self we are. How much aware of self we are. And that's not the way it is in the source. They're not self-aware, they're source-aware. But this is where we are. And as I said before, we have full access, even with this closed approach, sorry, closed perception to, to above, right? We're closed inside ourselves. We could still have the access to do the mitzvah and to rock the world and to, and to literally hug God and embrace God and we'll never be aware of it. I don't mean never, but it's possible that we might never be aware of it, even as we're doing it, because that's how filtered down we are. But nonetheless, we have the essence. At the same time, on a level of revelation, we're the lowest. So there's a source, and then there's the extension. We are at the bottom of all of those extensions. So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that... There's a lot that's missing when you're at the bottom. But there's also a tremendous opportunity, which is to work against the obstacles and to still connect with what's meaningful. And the ultimate punchline of this chapter, which we'll get to next time, 
is that when we study Torah, even the physical form of Torah that we have, that talks about oxen and flour and water and matzah and citrons and all the stuff that we talk about, the physical stuff. So it might seem like a diminished version. It's the same essential Torah. It's the same light, essential light and vitality that flows through it. So when we study it, it's not the same exact same Torah as they study above. The angels study a disembodied Torah. We study a concretized. We study the Torah of one apple plus another apple equals two apples, right? But that's not to take away anything from what we're doing. Because at the core, it's the same experience. So we should, we should recognize the incredible ability that we have and never let our perception get in the way of the reality. Because at the end of the day, life is more than what it seems. Thank you for joining me tonight for Think Different. Tanya, I hope this has helped you think a little bit different. I hope it wasn't too out there and different. This is chapter 52. This is uh, some of the deepest stuff in Tanya. I'm glad that you're on the journey with me. And I'm um, looking forward to next time. Any questions or comments? Now is your time. Jump in, please. Well, I think your last line was a cliffhanger because you said life is more than what it seems. Yes. <laughs> yes. I try to do that. Right? Life is more than, than what it seems in the sense that even when we don't have the perception, the truth is deeper than what we can see. That's the truth. Like, uh, like, he, like he said in a previous chapter, there's no difference whether you hug a king who's wearing one garment or a king who's wearing 15 garments. You're still hugging the king. See, even though we have all these levels of curtains you know, that, that hide, 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 hide in between, and when we hug the king, we don't even feel the king inside. The king is still there, and you're still hugging the king. So, yeah, the work of this... Chap these chapters is to open up our eyes to start letting us see the truth, right? This is kind of cracking through the facade, which is kind of amazing, right? God created the concealment of the revelation as the worlds continue to evolve. And Kabbalah chisel chisels away at that concealment a little bit, giving us a little bit of an opening, giving us a little bit of that light, which is beautiful. All right, thank you for joining me tonight for Tanya, Think Different Tanya. Looking forward to picking it up next week. Don't forget, um, Sunday is Kabbalah and Coffee. Sunday night is the book club. Um, Monday, DPP. Monday night, RCS, Rosh Chodesh Society. A wonderful Rosh Chodesh Society Monday night, by the way, I will say. It's all about relationships and friendships helping us Stay positive and, uh, and have joy. Certainly a theme that I think we can all relate to. You know, the idea of connecting with each other and that being able to uh, lift the mood in whatever way that we connect, right? Even virtually. Not even. I mean, you know, through, uh, through our screens. How, uh, how, how beautiful of a thing that is. But of course, it's about really working with relationships on every level. So join us um, for uh, Rosh Hashanah Society for Women is Monday night. And then stay tuned. Next Friday night, a week from tomorrow, will be our Shabbat dinner. If you're not yet signed up, join us. We also have, by the way, I, 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 we should have mentioned this, I should have mentioned this before. We also have um, 
we have a set menu, but we have flexibility with menus. So we have um, our caterer is uh, is very accommodating with the different um, menu requests and and dietary needs. So if you need something, just ask, and it's not not a problem to make it happen. We already we already have quite the variety um, on the menu. So you know, feel free to reach out and spread the word. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Good, good. All right, we'll see you all soon. Laila Tov, Shabbat Shalom. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Shabbat see you all. Bye.